It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, September 23rd, 2014. I should warn you, we're going to have a Heath Mooney hand update. I thought since he stepped down that there wouldn't be any news regarding him. Unfortunately, there is. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down and stop and open up our Bibles to see if what people are saying actually squares with what God's Word says when we read it in context. Okay, so let's talk about what we're going to do today. We're going to have to get right to it because we have a lot of ground to cover. And uh, so I'm going to skip my opening monologue and kind of opening thoughts. Let's just put it this way. Today we're we're going to be a little bit over the map. I have a general theme. Not everything kind of works into the theme. You'll be able to figure out what parts don't exactly work. And, uh, in fact, I can tell you the Heath Mooney hand one is uh, the one that doesn't exactly fit today's theme due to the fact that I threw it into today's episode at the last second. I mean, here I thought that, you know, the big news was that Heath Mooneyhan had stepped down, but little did I know that Heath had uh, received some media attention, you know, and uh, a story was written about him as being the pastor of the most manly church in the world kind of thing. It's as if Heath was purposely trying to out-Driscoll Driscoll, and uh, in the midst of trying to out-Driscoll Driscoll is when he was arrested for uh, driving while intoxicated. So uh, we have a Heath Mooneyhan update. We have a, a Joyce Meyer update. By the way, um, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, um, you're going to see me posting several posts regarding uh, the um, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times Karaoke Challenge. No joke, this is not something I put together, but William Tapley, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, has uh, decided that it's time for... Uh, a karaoke challenge to be issued, and if you would like to participate in the karaoke challenge and you can't get the song Doom and Gloom coming out of your, getting it, get it out of your head, well, hey, you know, good news, you can put that to good use, and if you, you can record yourself, video yourself singing Doom and Gloom and, um, and send that to William Tapley, you could be featured on his channel. And no, I will not be participating. <laughs> you know, although I gotta tell you, it was tempting for about half a second. Yeah. So if you would like to actually sing Doom and Gloom, um, go to uh, William Tapley's YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com forward slash third eagle books, and uh, you can see the uh, Doom and Gloom karaoke challenge that. Uh, William Tapley has issued. I, I'm putting links up on Facebook and Twitter uh, shortly so that if you'd like to participate, you can. And if any of my listeners decide that they would like to do that, um, if they would like to spruce up the song Doom and Gloom, we might feature it here at Fighting for the Faith in an upcoming William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, Co-Prophet of the End Times update. Just saying, okay? So again, details at uh, uh, William Tapley's uh, YouTube channel. But 
<clears throat> now, that's not what we're going to talk about. So we got a uh, let's go back. Rose broke reel in your brain. I got sorry. I'm all over the place at the moment. OK, so we've got Heath Mooneyhan. We've got Joyce Meyer. We got a Joyce Meyer update. Um, yeah. Uh, do you know that you are commanded by God to engage in courageous living? I, yeah, I didn't know that either. Um, but apparently you are, and uh, Joyce Meyer is going to fill us in on the details of that today. And uh, and then to round out hour number one, we have a uh, Rick Warren update. And I got to tell you, this particular update could go a couple of different ways. I've got so many different pieces from this sermon that I could feature that uh, it could be a, a longer uh, purpose-driven update, if you would. And then in hour number two, we're going to head to Mountain Lake Church. Uh, which is in Georgia. Um, I forget the name of the town they're in. I'll have to look that up on the internet before we get to the uh, sermon review. But Sean Lovejoy is, uh, I think it's in Canton, Georgia. Uh, Sean Lovejoy will be preaching on uh, the, on becoming an original. Mm-hmm. Yeah, becoming an original. And you'll notice that, uh, that you know, the uh, the Joyce Meyer update, the uh, the Saddleback Church Rick Warren update, and the Sean Lovejoy sermon kind of all work together. That's what we try to do here at Fighting for the Faith. We like to get our segment horses all pulling in the same direction, if you would. So anyway, um, we've got to get right to it because it's going to take us a lot of time to uh, get everything done today. So uh, since we're going to start off with the Heath Mooneyhan update, that requires us to do this. Mooneyhan literally uh, got some press, if you would, regarding having the manliest church in the world, or at least in America. And let me pull the music back here. And uh, that particular um, story, you can find it at vocative.com. The no joke, that's V O C A T I V, vocative.com. And the headline reads. Sex, Guns, and Jesus Inside America's Manliest Church. And the subtitle, and again, I, I'm going to read this straight from the uh, the press, from the website. It says, uh, Pastor Heath Mooneyhan wants to kick you in the nuts with Christ. His rapidly growing church, Ignite, promises red-blooded young men that it will never be boring, plus free assault rifles. And uh, this was written by uh, Shane Dixon Cavanaugh, and uh, the story, literally, uh, it has an update and the update says this, within an hour of publishing our story today, Vocative learned that Heath Mooneyhan was arrested in Joplin for a DWI on September 16th. At no point during the writing and fact-checking of this article did Mooneyhan or other leaders of Ignite reveal the arrest, which occurred a few days after our reporter returned home from South 
Yes, Missouri. So ignite. And so yeah, that it's uh, rather fascinating. So the story reads: Pastor Heath Mooneyhan takes a giant pull from his pint of Miller beer and drops his dinner order on a buxom young bartender. And again, I'm reading straight from the story. Uh, quote, get me some badass cheese fries, he says, earning a few laughs from his buddies flanked beside him at the bar. It's 10 p.m. On, tw- on a Saturday, 20 miles outside of Joplin, Missouri, where Mooneyhan helms a church for dudes by dudes called Ignite with a core mission to win over men ages 18 to 35. And hour earlier, the 36-year-old pastor had wrapped up his spiritual work for the evening by leading a group prayer set to heart-thumping Christian rock riffs. In Ignite's blackened auditorium with his big Sunday sermon tomorrow morning, Mooneyhan is taking the edge off of the Indigo Sky Casino, a weekly ritual that consists of pounding beers with his bros in Christ, at least tonight hitting on waitresses. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I find that fascinating that this article literally was published (laughs) One hour before they learned that uh, Mooneyhan was arrested for a DWI. Now, what I find fascinating also is is that the folks at Vocative.com put together, no joke, a highlight reel from um, <clears throat> Heath Mooneyhan's sermons. And um, what I find fascinating is is that the highlight reel in and of itself explains without explaining why it while it's a good thing that uh, Heath Mooneyhan won't be in a pulpit anytime soon and so i'm going to play for you um the uh, Heath Mooneyhan sermon highlight reel featured at vocative.com and i think it speaks for itself and i need to warn you um this highlight reel is not appropriate for small children yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I gotta say that, you know, despite the fact this guy is supposedly a Christian pastor, and this is a highlight reel from his sermons. Yeah, just trust me on this, little ears. Yeah, you don't want to play that for them. Here we go. This will be the most intense, raw, offensive thing you've ever heard in your life. Ugh. You have a friend. Maybe this friend stayed the night with you when he was a kid. Yeah, he's dressed up as a chick. And wants to go out in public? Ah! No! 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 Your husband is not your puppet. To where you use sex to manipulate him to get what you want. A lot of you women do that. You're never allowed to say no to your spouse. It's got to be no with an appointment. No sex for you! Well, you're wrong, chick, and you need to repent right now in Jesus' name. They're over there checking their Facebook status. I wonder what they're really saying. Checked them again. What do we have around here for the ladies? Hopefully a good godly man with a pair between his legs to take care of you one of these days. We end up making worldwide news, worldwide news over a sex series because, oh, people were shocked that churches were talking about sex. I'm just speaking for me. I'm kind of a strange dude. I have a weird obsession with big things. Big guns. Big trucks. You're a big boy. You got big balls between your legs. You're a dad, right? Get up. Set your alarm. Don't be a wuss. Get to church. Register. Because we're giving away a Smith & Wesson AR-15s. And our grand prize, you ready for this, is a Black Rain. AR-15. 
I always say this a lot. I feel like we're like the Charlie Sheen of churches. And don't just be like, maybe tomorrow. Never use that word maybe after no. That's a death trap right there. Don't buy into it, guys. It better be like, maybe not right now, but how about 543 in the morning? Okay. So there was another uh, pastor or something in the lobby earlier that was like talking to me. He's like, man, I saw some weird stuff. He's like, I didn't know if I was going to church or a tractor pull. And he's like, that's next week, sir. Next week's uh, actual lawnmower races or something like that. I'm maybe, I, I, I definitely grew up in a redneck town. You know what? I did what any God-fearing American would do at that point. You know, he he done broke his leg and stuff. So I went over there sideways, popped a couple nines in his head, you know, and, uh, all gangster style, you know, because I don't care if it's your dog that's crossing the street. I will run that sucker over, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's not for little boys. This is for men. And so if you're going to whine and cry about it, you probably should just stay home. And so it's going to be a great time. We'll see you there. So there you go. The uh, highlight reel from the uh, sermons of... Um <clears throat> the uh, of uh, Heath Mooneyhand, uh, the uh, the currently being disciplined pastor of Ignite Church, and my question is this: is um, why did you guys wait till he got a DWI to discipline him? I mean, the highlight reel in and of itself shows that he should have been brought under discipline a long time ago. Yep, that's what I believe. Morning with a smile upon my face. My natural exuberance spills out all over the place. Well, I'm the other spaceman, I'm intelligent and clean. So much for the uh, biblical qualifications for a pastor. You know, above reproach, you know, good character, sound doctrine and theology. No, all you need to do is be offensive in a really reprehensible, boorish kind of way. And, you know, uh, blame it on trying to reach men. And, uh, well, again, like I said, um, pray for him. Pray for him. That's about all I can say. And I got to tell you, it's one of those things where... What's happened has resulted in him having to step down for a while. This is a good thing. The church will be spared at least for the next 12 months. Moving along. Yeah, that's right. Time for a Joyce Meyer update. You got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum, bring gloom down to the minimum, have faith or pandemonium liable to walk upon the scene. To illustrate my last remark, Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark, what did they do? Just 
fluctuate to positive elim. Minate the negative and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. No, don't mess with Mr. In Between. There we go. You got to accentuate the uh, positive. Uh, that's our Joyce Meyer update now, music. Now, what we're going to hear is Joyce Meyer talking about her book about living courageously. And apparently this is uh, now Christian doctrine. I mean, who knew? I mean, if you're not living courageously, you're probably sinning. At least that's what I was able to do after listening to this teaching from Joyce Meyer. And here's Joyce Meyer to explain. Well, I've written a book called Living Courageously. It's a wonderful book about how to overcome fear in your life. I opened chapter one with a letter to the spirit of fear telling him goodbye. The spirit of fear. You're, yeah, you're divorcing the spirit of fear? And you know, if you're ever going to overcome fear, the first thing you have to do is decide that you're going to break up with fear, that you're going to have an attitude. To- yeah, I didn't even know that fear, fear was my girlfriend. I, I mean, who knew? For yourself, no fear lives here. The only acceptable attitude that a Christian should have is I will not fear. I see. The only acceptable attitude uh, that a Christian should have is I will not fear. So you're sinning if you fear. Got it. Okay. Um, Which biblical passage says that again? I'm not familiar with it. And, you know, King David, the psalmist David, he said that several times in the Psalms. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Uh, yeah, I see. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> isn't the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? So you, you got to understand that, you know, what kind of fear we're talking about here. Um, there's certain things we should fear, other things we shouldn't fear. I mean, just fear in general. Um, I don't think the Bible kind of gives a blanket teaching regarding fear. I, even the Bible uh, and God in his word recognizes that fear means different things in different times. You know what I'm saying? And I love that I will not fear. He certainly wasn't saying I don't feel fear. He was making a decision that he was not going to let fear rule his life. Yeah, fear is not a a person. And I think that's the first thing that we all have to do. You know, sometimes you've had something for so long in your life that you just get miserably comfortable with it. You don't really like it, but you've had it for so long that you settle down and just think, well, I guess this is the way it is or... This is just the way I am, or this is the way life is. And you don't even believe that you can live any other way. You know, in my childhood, I was abused sexually by my dad for a lot of years. And so my life was rooted in fear. My dad was an angry man, and he drank a lot, and he would come home angry and get violent with my mom and rant and rave and yell. And then there was all the abuse. And I just remember growing up in fear. And so it was challenging for me to... Again, what kind of fear are you talking about? Fear of being abused? I mean, is that an ungodly fear? Fear of being exposed, you know, regarding the sexual abuse? I mean, that's shame. I mean, what kind of fear are we talking about? Learn to not live in that fear. And I had to learn one thing at a time, one step at a time, one day at a time. But I have learned a lot of things over the years... And I believe you can benefit from some of the experiences that I've gone through. Ah, so your experiences are going to form the basis of a doctrinal teaching for us. So we can learn from your experiences. 
Right. Some of them were very difficult. Some were painful. But I believe that I can help you avoid some of that pain in your life if you will also learn to say, I will not fear. You know, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear is not from God. Again, what kind of fear are we talking about? God has given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. When fear attacks us, it's the enemy. It's the devil. And he's always trying to get us or to keep us from making progress. Let's just say, for example, that you want to go back to college. Maybe you're in your 40s and you never got a college degree and you've decided you'd like to go to college and get a degree. Yeah. Well, probably the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to be afraid that maybe you're too old or you're going to be afraid that you can't learn at your age or you're going to be afraid you won't get accepted into college. Uh, okay. Um, so those are ungodly fears, and if you're a Christian and you have those fears, you're sinning? Did, did Jesus die for that? Because, I mean, Jesus died for the sins of the world, right? I mean, if, if you are you know, in your 40s and you're afraid that, you know, to sign up for college because you're afraid they won't let you in, I mean, is that something you have to say, oh, Lord God, I, I am, I'm sorry, I confess that it was sinful for me to think that? Some things for sure. If God's put a good idea in your heart, something that's going to bless you and bless your family, something that's a desire of your heart, it's not God then putting that fear in there telling you not to do it. Okay, so God puts the desire in my heart, but the fear that's being put in my heart is coming from the devil. It is the enemy because he doesn't want you to make progress. So, so if you're 40 years old and haven't been to college yet, the devil doesn't want you going to college. Really? I'm asking you today, if you will make a decision, first and foremost, I am not going to live in fear. Now, that doesn't mean that you will never feel fear, but it does mean that you can learn how to conquer it and overcome it. And we're going to talk more about that on another one of these little mini teachings. Oh, goody. In order to live courageously... And living courageously means that I'm going to learn to follow my heart. So, okay, so the finer points of the doctrine of living courageously. Uh, living courageously means you're going to follow your heart. Where in the Bible does it say, I number one, need to live courageously, and number two, that living courageously means following my heart? Where, where is she getting this? I'm going to take risks. So if you don't take risks, you're not a Christian? I'm going to be bold. If you're not bold, you're sinning against God. I'm going to step out and really work with the Holy Spirit to be not just okay, not just average, not just ordinary, but to be somebody who really makes a difference in the world. So I'm going to work with the Holy Spirit to be bold and courageous and make a difference in the world. Where in the Bible am I told that I need to cooperate and work with the Holy Spirit to achieve these objectives? I'm not familiar with the passages that say this. How many of you want to not just pass through here unnoticed, but you want to make a mark in the world and have people remember for a long time that you were here? Uh, huh. Yeah, and then when all those people who remembered I was here die, then no one will remember that I was here. And what have I accomplished exactly? Don't discount yourself and think, well, you know, that, that's only for the people on the platform or the people on television. It's for every single child of God. 
Okay, so this is a one-size-fits-all doctrine, this courageous, bold living and and uh, making sure that some people remember you, at least until they die. Uh, that's for every single Christian. So this is a universal doctrine that she's teaching. And if this is really, truly a universal doctrine that we're all supposed to be believing and applying in our lives, then the Bible would say that, right? God has something for each of us to do. We have a part to play. You have something that nobody can do as good as you can do it. And if you don't do it, it's going to hurt all the rest of us. I see. Um, boy, yeah, the, the focus on self seems to be quite high. You know, I'm reminded of that passage from the Apostle Paul up where he's prophesying about what things would be like in the last days. And he says, people would be lovers of self. Hmm. Yeah, that lovers of self, you know, narcissism is uh, is the term we use nowadays for that. And the fascinating thing, when Paul made that prophecy, he wasn't talking about people who were lovers of self, you know, out in the world, because, I mean, that's what people in the world do. They love themselves. But he was talking about that being kind of a harbinger, a mark of Christ's imminent return. Yeah, the, the super focus on self really seems to um, be quite rampant nowadays. You know what I'm saying? You never will be as excited as you will be if you are really in the middle of fulfilling your destiny. Destiny. This is young Frankenstein uh, theology. Destiny. Destiny. No escaping that for me. Nothing can ever make you as satisfied and fulfilled as knowing that you're chasing after God with your whole heart. Amen. But fear is Satan's tool. Yes, it's from the devil. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear. Let's settle that. When you feel afraid, it's not God trying to tell you don't do that. That's not the way God works. God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Yeah, again, um, when it says God has not given us a spirit of fear, what kind of fear is that passage referring to? Amen. So when we feel fear, we can be pretty much assured that it's Satan trying to keep us from doing what God would have us to do or what would be the best thing for us to do. Or I see. Satan's out there trying to keep you from, you know, doing the best things. And so he's going to send fear your way, you know, to keep you from going to college or seeking a job promotion and stuff. Because, oh, yeah, that's what the devil's all about. He may just be trying to make you miserable. The Bible says that fear hath torment. Fear brings torment. And I've even discovered that dread, which I believe is a very close relative of fear, can also bring torment. I try to practice in my life not even letting myself dread things. Don't dread going to the grocery store. Don't dread doing your dishes. Don't. So if you dread going to the grocery store, that's the devil, you know, causing you to dread. Dread cutting the grass. Don't dread sitting down and paying your bills. Don't let that spirit of dread and fear get into your life. Know who you are in Christ. Know that you can do whatever you need to do through the strength of God that is in you and live with your head held up high, your shoulders back, walk strong and live courageously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, the, the, the problem here is that this is this doctrine has never been a part of Christian orthodoxy. It's just appeared recently on the scene, 
And um, the verses supposedly that teach this are all out of context, and the emphasis really seems to be on the me-centered syllable, if you know what I mean. <clears throat> yeah, it's problematic at best, if if you want to put it that way. I just think it's uh, narcissistic to the core. What do you think? All right, we're up on our uh, first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, kind of a long, seeker-driven Rick Warren update. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Lobos Ministry Records, an album that's just oozing with the love of Christ. It's Pastor Perry Noble's new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. The songs on this album will melt your face off in a sanctified way. This album includes the number one purpose-driven praise techno dance song of all time entitled, well, you might just want to hear it for yourself. What about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. What about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Don't you feel closer to Jesus after hearing that sample? Well, we've got another one for you, too. This one's entitled, You Officially Suck. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Listen, I'm playing games, we all I think that you officially suck as a human being. I'm not playing games. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out With People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act now, and Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. 
because they're stupid, because they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church, because they're stupid, because they're stupid. So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new techno praise album entitled, More Like Jesus. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your overly testosteroned uh, megachurch pastor who likes to browbeat and berate people, all in the name of being manly for Jesus. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 13344 grand forks north dakota zip code 58208 and let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we're doing here without it now real quick i wanted to read the passage that i referenced or at least in passing uh, regarding uh, people being lovers of self in the last times this is a prophecy uh, given by the apostle paul 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, mm-hmm. lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Yeah, that list right there sounds like so many of today's megachurch pastors. It's just kind of creepy, if you know what I mean. Sad, actually, if you think about it. All right. Moving along, we've got an extensive uh, Rick Warren purpose-driven update, and that requires us to do this. I don't know how I know, but I'm going to find my purpose. I don't know where 
joy that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. Yeah, that's right. That's our purpose-driven update music. So, um, well, here's the thing. Um, Rick Warren has recently preached a sermon entitled Winning with the Hand That You're Dealt. Winning with the Hand That You're Dealt. And the weird thing about this sermon is that it doesn't follow the instructions given to pastors. Yeah, that's right. If you want to know what pastors are supposed to do, you got to think of it this way. Just like the president of the United States is an office and then there's a person who sits in and holds that office, currently Barack Obama, um, the pastoral office is an office in the church and that that a past, the person holding that office has specific instructions and duties in order to fulfill the, the, the duties of the office. Preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Yeah, things like that. If you are un, a little unfamiliar with the duties of the pastoral office, I would say take a look at First and Second Timothy, read the epistle of Titus. These should not take you very long. They're very short letters. These are called the pastoral epistles. You could also like throw into the mix Acts chapter 20. You know, there's, there's some stuff in there that talks about the duties of the pastoral office as well. But those are your primary texts. So the job of a pastor is to preach the word. In fact, let me read to you what the, what the apostle Paul says to a young pastor Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, uh, and by his appearing in his kingdom, get this, preach the word. Mm-hmm. What's a pastor supposed to be doing? Preaching the word. Uh, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with pay, complete patience in teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure Sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, that would be God's word, and wander off into myths, myths being man-made doctrines and things like that, uh, that, well, you get what I'm saying. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Job of a pastor, in other words, preach the word. That being the case, we're going to take a listen to uh, Rick Warren's recent sermon. We're going to jump around this thing a little bit. We won't be doing the sermon in its entirety, but I want you to kind of get the flavor of what it is that Rick Warren's, well, what he preached. And we'll give you a couple of accounts along the way of see how he actually handled God's word in the midst of this sermon, because he ain't preaching the word. He's preaching the thoughts of his own brain. Here's Rick Warren. Now, the Bible says there's nothing simple about you. You're very complex. You're multifaceted. You're not easy to understand. You're not easy to explain. Wow. I mean, who knew I was so great? There are many factors and there are many forces that create you. In Psalm 139, verse 14, David says, Thank you, Lord, for making me so wonderfully complex. Circle that on your outline. Wonderfully complex. Guys, if you're sitting next to your wife, whisper into her ear right now, Honey, you are wonderfully complex. And then wives, you whisper back, You are amazingly simple. (laughs) You know, men just have an on and off switch. Women, they've got all these gauges and dials and buttons and, you know, uh, procedures. Men, it's just kind of on and off, actually. The Bible says we're all wonderfully complex. And to become all that God intends for you to be, you have to look at every dimension of your life, not just one. 
Okay, now this is kind of the key portion of this where he actually jumps the rails. Let me back up the audio a little bit and listen carefully to what he said. And to become all that God intends for you to be. And if, in order to become all that God intends for you to be. Oh, well, see, Rick Warren, he's the master of purpose, right? So you want to be all that God intends for you to be. Well, how do you achieve that? Listen, listen again. You have to look at every dimension of your life, not just one. Oh, so you have to have a multi-dimensional approach to yourself in order to achieve all that God would have you achieve. Where in the Bible does it say this? Which biblical text actually says this, that we need to have this multi-dimensional approach in order to, uh, uh, multi-dimensional approach uh, regarding ourselves in order to achieve all that God would have us achieve? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 18. I love this in the message paraphrase. A person who fears God deals responsibly with all of reality, not just a piece of it. <laughs> From the message paraphrase of all places. Okay, so you got to deal with all of reality. Okay, I'm sure. We continue. If you're going to be who God wants you to be, you're going to have to look at every area of your life, every factor, every facet, every force in your life, and deal with all of them. To Just because that Ecclesiastes verse that you quoted out of context from the message paraphrase says we have to kind of look at all things in our life. To be all God means for you to be. Now today, I want us to look at this subject of being who God meant you to be, and I'm calling it winning the hand you're dealt. That's, notice what he said. And I'm calling it winning the hand you're dealt. I'm calling it. What does God call it? Because I'm not familiar with this teaching. Because there are actually five factors in your life. Not one, but five. Five factors. Okay, and where does the Bible mention these five factors that are the different facets that I'm supposed to be looking at in my life? That influence your identity and who you are. Do you remember the parable of the talents? Yeah, I do. Jesus said the master goes out and he gives one guy ten talents and another guy five talents and another guy one talent. And then he says, go off and make the most of what I've given you. Yeah, that's not how I remember the parable of the talents. Hang on a second. I'm going to pull up my uh, my computerized Bible and uh, type in the word talents. And we're going to limit our search to the Gospels yeah, so I can pull this up. Uh, here we go, Matthew 25. Let's take a look at the Matthew 25 account of the parable of the talents. Okay, Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and, and uh, one another one, each according to his ability. By the way, talent here is, he, it's, he didn't give them singing ability or the ability to dunk a basketball or to, you know, to be an eloquent speaker or to philosophize. That's not what the word talent means in this text. The Greek word talanta, uh, yeah, or talantan, actually. Uh, yeah, the, the talanta is the uh, accusative form in which it appears in the text itself, but the nominative is talantan, and it, it, it's a sum of money. God, Jesus wasn't handing out, you know, you know, speaking abilities and dancing abilities and, you know, things like that. You know, he was giving, he was giving out sums of money. Okay. So he who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, 
Oh, by the way, here's the to one he gave five talents to another two, another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. There were no instructions given. <laughs> no instructions at all as to uh, what to do with those um, those talents. And then he went away, and uh, the one who received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents and the, made two talents more, but the one who received the one talent, he went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now let's take a look at the cross reference to this cross reference to this by the way is found in the uh, Gospel of Luke the Gospel of Luke chapter 19 and uh it, Luke's account they're not talents they're minas uh here's what it says Luke chapter 19 a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return calling 10 of his servants he gave to them 10 minas and said to them engage in business until I come But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered that the servants to whom he had given the money be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So, uh, yeah, the the, the passage here, nothing about, you know, go and do the best with it as you can. Uh, The parable of the talents particularly doesn't actually say that. So what is the point of the parable of the talents if it's not Jesus handing out dancing abilities, singing ability, the ability to dunk, uh, you know, basketball or the ability to hit home runs? What was he What was this all about? Okay. Well, this is a parable about those who have faith in Christ as opposed to those who don't. That's actually what's going on here. Let me continue uh, reading. The, uh, uh, verse 17 from Matthew 25. So also he who had two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug, it, uh, dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Now notice, the uh, the guy who did business with the the master's money thought well of the master you know and believed him to be a good guy and and was pleased as punch to say hey look at your mind your your talent made more more talents right so his master said to him well done and the, also the one who had two talents came forward saying master you delivered me two talents here i've made two talents more his master said good job good and faithful servant you've been faithful over little i'll set you over much enter into the joy of your master now he would receive the one talent came forward saying master i knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow gathering where you scattered no seed so i was afraid and i hid your talent in the ground now this would be bad fear fear of jesus Hmm, that means to fear Jesus is to think poorly of him, to think that he's evil, to think evil of him, to not have faith in him, to not trust him. That's the problem here, right? So um, so he said, I was afraid and I hid your talent and, you know, in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I do not sow, I gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Uh, take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten, for everyone who has will be given more, and he who and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. Has not what? Faith in Christ. That's what saves us, right? Yeah, so this isn't about that. And by the way, the end of the story, though, the cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, the one who doesn't have faith in Christ, who thinks 
you know, poorly of Jesus to the point where he fears him in a really bizarre way, fears that he, you know, somehow he's evil or wicked or up to no good. Well, they end up in hell. That's what happens. And that's what that parable's about. We continue. Let me back this up because Rick Warren apparently missed that in, you know, in didn't read his commentaries. Uh, so here again, what he says this parable is about. Jesus said the master goes out and he gives one guy ten talents and another guy five talents and another guy one talent. And then he says, go off and make the most of what I've given you. You know. You're not going to be responsible for talents you weren't given. Notice he switches. He doesn't even pay attention to what the, the talent is. Talent is not gifts and abilities. Talent is a sum of money. You're not going to be judged by God for opportunities you didn't have. But God is going to judge you one day and evaluate your life on what you did with what you were given. Now, the point of the parable of the talents is we don't get the same thing. We don't have the same talents. We don't have the same background. We don't have the same pains. We don't have the same problems. We don't have the same potential. We don't have the same anything except we're all loved by God. We are all unique. We are all different. But there are five factors that create your identity. You did not choose these factors. God dealt them to you. And just uh, Okay, so he twists the parable of the talents and does it so quickly he just moves on. Never really paid attention to what that uh, parable was about. Never really actually explained it properly. And now we're off to the next thing, whatever the next thing is, talking about these five factors. But where in the Bible does it talk about these five factors? This is, you didn't choose your talents. You didn't choose the talents you didn't get. You didn't choose a lot of other things in your life that, that make you you. And so I want us to look at that today. Now, how many of you have ever played poker? Can I see your hands? All right, good. I feel we got a lot of sinners here. All right, good. I'm feeling a lot more comfortable now knowing that a lot of you played poker. In five-card stud poker, you have to play the cards you're dealt. You don't get to mix and match them. You don't get to say, I want to play his hand. You can only play the cards you are dealt. Um, how is it that you're making a metaphor into the thing that's carrying the doctrine? Now, in many ways, this is a metaphor in life. There are some things that you have been dealt in life. You didn't choose them. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose when you were born, where you were born, how you were born. You didn't choose your race. You didn't choose your talents. You didn't choose the talents you don't have. There are a lot of things that make you you that you had no choice in at all. They're the hand you were dealt. But you got to play the hand you're dealt. And in many ways, this is a metaphor for life, that life is like a, a hand of poker, that you got to play the hand you're dealt. Now, the Bible tells us a lot about the factors that we're given in life that make us us. Okay, so he says the Bible teaches us about the factors. Well, okay, if that's the case, then we should be able to find these in the Bible. So what's factor number one, Rick? You have to understand the five factors that make you, you. And I am using this metaphor, these five cards, to represent this. Now, the first factor that makes you, you, is what I call... My chemistry. 
didn't you just say that the Bible talks about these factors that make us us, or you you? Um, where does the Bible talk about chemistry? You know, human hormones and chemistry and things like that. I can't seem to recall any passages of the Bible saying, thus one of the factors that makest thou uppest youest is, uh, is the factor of chemistry. Yeah, but the, the important thing that Rick said, the thing he said, that this is what I call chemistry. I call. Who's, te- who's teaching what here? Rick Warren's teaching his own teaching. This is his own stuff that he's trying to pass off as Christian doctrine. My chemistry, you might write that down. This is your chromosomes. It's your DNA. It's your genes. It's your hormones. It is your chemical makeup. At the most basic biological level, it's you and your body. Everything that happens to you in your life happens in your body, and your body is made up of chemicals. Yeah, and where does the Bible talk about these chemicals and chromosomes and genes and things like that? Now, some of you were born, for instance, with a hypersensitivity to pain. And, you're, and you notice pain very, very uh, easily. You're the princess in the pea. And if something doesn't fit right or feel right, you notice it immediately. It's not right or wrong. It's just the way you're wired. It's your chemistry. Others of you, you're born with a very high tolerance for pain. You know, I once cut the end off of a toe, and I didn't notice it till the end of the day. It's like, where'd that toe go? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to fast forward a little bit. So factor number one, the Bible talks all about these factors, you know, that make up you. And, uh, and so the Bible apparently talks about chemistry, and yet after listening to the sermon in its entirety, I didn't see any biblical passages that talk about chemistry. He did make this comment, though, that I thought was rather fascinating, talking about flaws. And notice the emphasis is on you and how great you are. Listen to this. You know, the other day I bought a pair of jeans, and they were, they're not these, but some other ones that were a little bit more distressed. And, and when I got them home, there was a little tag on them, and it said this. These jeans have intentional flaws in order to make them unique. I thought, I'd like to put that tag on every person. Your genes, G-E-N-E-S, have flaws in them to make you unique. Yeah, I thought flaws in the genetic code and the flaws that exist are as a result of man's fall into sin. Not because God was making us unique. Why? Because you're not a carbon copy or a clone or mass-produced anything. Any artist knows that they'll often create a flaw in a picture or in a vase or in a, uh, a piece of pottery to say, there's nothing else like this in the world. It has this unique flaw in it. I collect old Bibles. Bibles that have printing mistakes in them are actually more valuable than those with no mistakes. Well, who knew? I mean, you know, because you have so many mistakes and flaws, I mean, that means that you're a masterpiece. Narcissistic um, doctrine isn't this, and this kind of contradicts the whole biblical doctrine of original sin. They cost far much, far more as an antique. The flaw creates the uniqueness. Your genes have intentional flaws to create your uniqueness. And which biblical text says that? And your flaws are a part of your custom design. 
And which biblical text says that? And God designed you, and he even uses those flaws for his purpose and his glory. The Bible calls them, Paul calls them, my thorn in the flesh. Ah, so those unique flaws in your um, genetic code, that's what the Bible calls the thorn in the flesh, because that thorn in the flesh is the unique flaw that makes you so original and a masterpiece. Whew. Okay, boy, we're obsessing about self, aren't we? Okay, uh, so factor number two. You said, Rick, that the Bible talks about these uh, these factors that make us us, and the first factor was chemistry. Here's Rick to kind of summarize, uh, you know, where we've been and where we're going. So here's factor number two. Here we go. The first characteristic in your life that makes you you is your biology, your body, your chemistry. Now, the second thing that determines your identity is connections, my connections, my chemistry and my connections. Okay, where does the Bible talk about these factors again, you know, chemistry and connections? Where does the Bible talk about this this thing that helps make me me? You know, the connections, you said the Bible talks about these factors. My connections are my relationships in life. You are a product of your relationships, especially your early years relationships. Now, those relationships may have been good or they may have been bad. They may have been healthy. They may have been unhealthy. They have been, may have been non-existent or they may have been abusive. But you are a product of your relationships, particularly those early year relationships. Okay, yeah. Let's throw in another um, twisting of God's word here while he is explaining this uh, second factor, the the connections and relationships. Here's the biblical text that he gave us to kind of back all this up. One day Jesus is walking down the street. And the guy comes up and says, Lord, what's life all about? Jesus says, life is all about love. It's not about accomplishment. It's not about acquisition. You know, it's not about popularity or power or prestige. It's about love. It's about relationships. He says, yeah, if you have your Bible, let's take a look at that. Matthew, I think where it's Matthew chapter, um, yes, uh, 19. Matthew chapter 19 is where we're going to be. And let's see, let's do a little fact checking to see if, um, if, uh, this actually squares up with what Rick Warren said. So let me back this up, and uh, here's Rick Warren's accounting of this particular portion of Scripture. Here we go again. One day Jesus is walking down the street, and a guy comes up and says, Lord, what's life all about? All right, so Jesus is walking down the street, and some dude pops up out of nowhere and says, what's life all about? Here's the text, Matthew 19, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? He didn't say, what's life all about? He said, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, here's the th- interesting thing. The disciples don't refer to Jesus as teacher. They refer, refer to him as Lord. So the fact that uh, that this guy is calling Jesus a teacher shows that he doesn't recognize Jesus for who he is, and that is the Lord, God in human flesh. So uh, let's see here. And what good thing must I do to have eternal life? So he is trying to figure out, okay, what's the thing I got to do so that I can earn eternal life? Yeah, salvation is a free gift given by Jesus. Repent of your sins and recognize Jesus is your Lord and that he's died 
for you. I mean, well, at this point, he hasn't died, but you get what I'm saying here. So why do you ask me what is good? Jesus says, there's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So he said to him, well, which ones? She said, all right. Yeah, so Jesus, since he, this guy addressed Jesus as a teacher, Jesus is going to answer as a teacher of the law. I, Jesus said, you know, you don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All second table of the law, dealing with our relationships with each other. So the young man said, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? He's not satisfied with Jesus' answer. Hmm. So Jesus gets to the nub of the matter. Jesus said, all right, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, all that you possess. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stop trying to earn your salvation. Uh huh. So when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus said, Look at them and looked at them and said, Well, with man, it's impossible. It's impossible for man to save himself, but with God, all things are possible. Peter replied, said, Well, we left everything to follow you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers, sisters or father or mother or children, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit, inherit, inherit. Inheritance is a gift. Inherit eternal life. Yeah, that's that's one of these passages that talks about this. Um, but I don't seem to recall, yeah, dude, what's life all about, dude? You know, hey, Jesus, what's life all about? Yeah, notice Rick Warren's twisting God's word. Jesus says life is all about love. It's not about accomplishment. It's not about acquisition. You know, it's not about popularity or power or prestige. It's about love. It's about relationships. He says you can summarize all of life in two senses. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. Be connected to God. Be connected to each other. Be in harmony with God. Be in harmony with each other. Make the connection with God. Make the connection with others. He said, if you- yeah, all, this is all law. Yeah. So what's the third card? Yeah, moving along. My chemistry, that's my biology, my body, yeah. my connections, that's my relationship. That's th- card one and two. The third card that makes you you and makes me me is my circumstances. Yeah. So where does the Bible talk about chemistry, connections, and then circumstances? Notice that everything starts with a C. How about the fourth card? What's the fourth card? There's a fourth card, a fourth factor that makes you, you. And this is a big one. It's what I call my consciousness. Ah, yeah. Consciousness. Connections, chemistry, consciousness. It's what you call consciousness. What does the Bible call it? And this is fascinating. Rick Warren actually kind of pulled a a word of faith heresy, uh, Bible twisting, while explaining consciousness in this sermon. Listen to this. Your habitual thoughts are your identity. Uh, my habitual thoughts are my identity. Okay. What you think about you, that's your identity. The Bible says this. Look up here on the screen. Proverbs 23, 7. For as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Now, Proverbs 23, 7, Rick Warren is twisting this verse almost identically to the way the word of faith heretics um, you know, twist this verse. They'll say, oh, as a man thinketh, thinketh in his heart, so is he. So you got to think positive thoughts. 
And in Rick Warren's, he's saying, well, oh, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So th- this is your consciousness. As you think about yourself, that's how you are, is what he's saying, right? Well, that's not what Proverbs 23.7 is saying, okay? And what I'll have to do is, is I'm going to read this from the ESV so you can see what's going on. And the context is real simple. You just go to verse 6. Here's what it says. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating, eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Verses 6 and 7 work together. Now, here it is from the King James, so you can kind of see where they get this from. And I'll start at verse 6. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Um, Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Yeah, see, this is not talking about consciousness or anything of the sort. And what Rick Warren is doing is twisting God's word. So it's kind of fascinating what's going on in the sermon. Rick Warren is teaching his own stuff as if it's biblical and it's not. And every time he opens up his Bible to tell us what the Bible says, he's twisting it and not actually correctly telling us what the scriptures say. Yeah, that's a bad sign. That's the sign of a false teacher. That's the sign of a wolf. That's the sign of somebody who's making merchandise of people. That's the sign of people of, of, well, one who is deceiving. Yeah, a, a, a sound biblical pastor will rightly handle God's word and not twist it. So you, you get what's going on here. Now, I know you're dying to know, what's, well, what's the fifth card? You know, since we talked about connections and chemistry and consciousness and, you know, and all this kind of stuff, what's the last card? Well, here's the fi- fifth and final card. And uh, Rick Warren, to explain this extra-biblical doctrine that isn't really found in the Bible that he says is the Bible talks about, but it doesn't. Um, here's Rick Warren again. But there's a fifth card, and this fifth card is so important because it controls all the other cards. Ah. The fifth card that makes me me is my choices. Ah. So, there you go. Rick Warren's latest sermon, just chock full of Bible twisting. And uh, again, keep this in mind. The devil is a liar. He's a liar and the father of lies. When he lies, he's speaking his native language. If a pastor is getting up and speaking lies in the name of God, he's not doing the work of Christ. No, he's doing the work of the devil. Because Jesus wants his pastors in his church, who hold that office, to preach the word, to preach what's in accord with sound doctrine, to rightly handle the word of truth. Yet every time I listen to Rick Warren, I mean, without fail, he twists God's word. That's not the sign of a true teacher. That's the mark of a wolf and somebody who's deceiving people. Think about it. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to head to Mount Lake Church, and we're going to hear a sermon. Well, it's kind of in the same vein. It's all about you. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... (laughs) 
listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via mountain lake church coming georgia sean lovejoy presiding the name of the sermon is becoming an original and this is the epitome of the seeker driven purpose driven message it's all about you finding your unique purpose and becoming an original and uh yeah the uh, overemphasis on love of self is just beyond the pale. And I think this is a perfect example of the fulfillment of what Paul warned us about in 2 Timothy 3. In the last days, people will become lovers of self. This is in the church. Yeah. Yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. Let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Sean Lovejoy in his sermon, Becoming an Original. Here we go. Well, good morning, Mount Lake. How are we doing? Good. Great to have you here today for the 11th service, fourth awesome service of this campus scattered across 300 campuses. It's crazy. We sent about 200 people to Dawson County and we hope they make it out alive. Um, no, awesome, awesome campus launch up there. Excited about what God's doing all of our community. If you're a guest, my name is Sean Lovejoy. I'm the lead pastor here and we're pumped you're here. We want you to not just come in and listen to music and sermons, though. Like we want this to be a place to belong. So 
We hope you'll take some steps, look to get connected, build relationships. Group launch coming up next Sunday night is a great opportunity to do that. Take advantage of those kinds of opportunities. Band of Brothers, Girlfriends this week. We want to get to know you, okay? And we'll be out in the lobby after the service. Hope you'll stop by and say hello. We're nice and we don't bite, okay? Come by and see us. Say hello. We'd love to meet you. We're pumped you're here. I've been looking forward to this weekend once again. I have this unique ability to know what we're going to be teaching on months in advance. Pray about these things. Think about these things. Ponder on these things. And God starts working in my heart on these issues long before, you know, I preach to you. God gets to preach to me. And so I've been looking so forward to this weekend and what we're going to talk about. I, I really, I don't know why you came today. And I don't know what you came expecting. Maybe nothing. Okay. But I believe what we're going to talk about today has the capacity to change the trajectory of your life. I believe in what we're talking about that much today. I believe it can affect our children and our children's children. If So we're talking about penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We're talking about repenting and trusting in Christ for forgiveness and eternal life, right? That's the thing that's going to change our lives and change the trajectory of our lives and, and the lives of our children's children's children, right? If we really latch on to what I'm going to talk about today. Now, are you listening? Okay, three of you, but we'll work on that as we go along. Okay. When we think about the word original, we think about something that's one of a kind, right? Something that's so unique, it makes it extremely valuable. Take the Mona Lisa, for example. Okay. Now, shockingly, this is not the original Mona Lisa. I bought this cheap imitation on Amazon. You can get anything imitation on Amazon or eBay, right? And this is an example of that. I did bring a photograph of the original Mona Lisa that hangs in the Louvre Museum in <clears throat> Paris, France. 8.8 million people traveled from around the world to see this painting in person last year. Last year. It's the most valued and widely sought after painting in the world. How valuable is it? Well, we don't even know because... Nobody's ever put it up for sale, <clears throat> but the, the, the owner, uh, actually insured it for a hundred million dollars years ago. But most people guesstimate that if it actually did go on the market, it could bring as much as $1 billion to a collector. Now, what is it that makes this painting, at least the original of it, so valuable? Well, not to be rude, but it's not because of Omona here, right? I mean, bless her heart. <laughs> <laughs> She's just a little bit homely. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it, it's not old Mona here. What, what is it that makes the Mona Lisa so valuable? Isn't it true that the Mona Lisa is mainly valuable because of who painted her? Anybody know who painted Mona Lisa? Leonardo da Vinci. Widely considered the most genius artist in human history. He also painted uh, a painting that a lot of Christians are familiar with, The Last Supper. Anybody, anybody's grandma had that hanging in their house when you were growing up? Most of us have seen that picture somewhere in a home or somewhere else and epitomized the entire Renaissance era. And the Mona Lisa is mainly valuable because we know Leonardo's da Vinci's hands on a brush over a 14-year period, by the way, painted this original painting, the Mona Lisa. Now, there are all kind of original works of art floating around out there, but they're not all that valuable, Right? Uh, case in point, I brought a work of art with me today that I created 
25 years ago in high school. So it's vintage. Okay. (laughs) Maybe antique. I don't know, but I created this. Whereas, whereas the Mona Lisa took 14 years. This took me two weeks in shop class. Okay. But I am proud of it. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I've saved this all these years and I'm so proud of it. And uh, one of these days I can pass it down to my children. Okay. So we'll, we'll start the bidding at a, at a billion dollars. Who's who's, who'll bid on this hundred million. Can I get a hundred? Could I get 10? Not in Georgia, right? (laughs) It's not happening. No, the truth is like not every original has great value. All right. I want you to think about this and latch on this truth. An original has value only when someone significant created it. Think about that for a minute. Because it's true for our lives. It's true for you and me. You and I were created to be originals. There never has been, nor will there ever be anybody just like us. Science proves it. Our one of a kind DNA. Yeah. Okay. So here's the issue is that, yes, it's true. um, The DNA that I have is not owned by anybody else. Identical twins, though, they're genetically the same. That makes them identical twins. And, uh, yeah, I do have a unique fingerprint, though, and I'm sure that my halitosis, ain't nobody quite got the same aroma going on there. But, see, the thing is, is that this is kind of to miss the point. And the, the reason why is, is that here, I mean, the emphasis is on just how amazingly unique you are. But the reality is, is that Scripture, despite our uniqueness, each and every one of us has has the same problem. And that's this. Let me read this for you from Romans chapter 3. I'll start at verse 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's each and every one of us. Each and every one of us, as you know, how we were born, dead in trespasses and sins, at war with God, not seeking God, basically sinners. It's not the uniqueness of scripture of us that Scripture addresses. It's the collective thing that we all have in common that we're all descendants of Adam, and therefore we are born dead in trespasses and sins and in need of a savior. This is what scripture addresses, not our uniqueness, but the thing that we all have in common as a result of our common ancestor, Adam, you know, the Adam and his wife Eve. But here's what scripture then goes on to say, but now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, everybody might be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. So we've got a problem here. This emphasis on our uniqueness, I mean, especially in light of the fact that we're all sinful and fallen, is really, you know, again, another example of this overemphasis on self-love that is kind of missing the whole point. It's not our uniqueness that the scriptures address. It's our common thing that we all have in common, our sinful nature. We continue. Never been, nor will there ever be one just exactly like us. We're an original. And that's not only a testament to us, that's a testament to God who created us, the most significant being in the universe. We have a unique destiny to fulfill from his perspective. We play an... Yeah, there we go again. Unique destiny to fulfill. Hmm. Now we're going to try... He's, uh, Sean's going to make a good effort to try to show that that's what the Bible says, but we'll show that that's not actually what it says. Oh, you're unique. You have a unique destiny. Yeah, you got to be courageous, you know, is what Joyce Meyer said. And then Rick Warren, you know, he, he added to the whole hit parade with this. We continue. We have a unique destiny to fulfill from his perspective. We play an irreplaceable role in his plan. See, our uniqueness is not just a privilege. It's a responsibility. We not only owe it to ourselves to be ourselves, we owe it to God to be ourselves. Our, our uniqueness... You gotta be ourselves? What? Us, we're uncomfortable with our uniqueness. We're insecure with our own originality. We're insecure in our own skin. And a lot of us, we're uncomfortable with who we are and with how we look and how we measure up and what we think we're worth. And we compare ourselves to everybody else. We spend a lot of our lives trying to copy someone else. Be like somebody else. Keep up with somebody else. Well, starting today, my prayer is that changes. Starting today from the inside out, we're going radioactive, baby. Um, and how is this Christian doctrine and what God wants Christians to be doing? We're going to stand out and people are going to know it. And we're going to embrace and take back our originality. Anybody interested in that? Whatsoever? We're going to embrace and take back our originality. Where, where did the disciples do that? You know, we're here to announce to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you can have forgiveness of sins and you can learn how to be an original and take back your originality. It doesn't fit. Whatsoever. How do we do that? Well, the word original, if you just think about it for just a minute, comes from the word origin, which means beginning. And I really think for us to understand who we are and, and discover our unique identity, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning, when God created us. And by us, I don't just mean us. I mean all of us, all of humanity. I want us to look at that today, walk through it a little bit. Look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, talks about the first little hint and sign that you and I were created to be originals. It says, so God created mankind, that's man and woman, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Among everything God created those first seven days, think about this, only humans were created in the image, the likeness of God. That, that word literally means to resemble or to reflect something or someone else. That makes us original. If you remember from biology class in high school, did you go to biology class, you skip it? In biology class, we were taught that 
you have 46 unique chromosomes. 23 you get from your dad and 23 you get from your mom. And it's that unique combination of chromosomes that determines everything about us. From the color of our eyes to the size of our feet. Now in the Lovejoy family, we all have short, stubby, wide feet. Anybody else got wide feet? I'm like that. My dad's like that. Now my son, Paul, he's only 10 years old. I can already tell he has very wide feet. But we're good swimmers. Okay? All right? If you think about it, our our originality is part heredity. You agree with that? And so it is with the image of God. But we don't like to think that way. But we were created in his likeness, in his image. That makes us unique from all of creation. This is true. That does make us unique from all of creation. None of the none of the beasts of the field were created in the image of God. This is true. But got to keep in mind that, well, things have changed as a result of the fall. Our fall into sin has changed everything. So uh, let's take a look at another passage. We took a look at Romans chapter 3. Well, let's take a look at another one, Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what it says. Paul speaking to the uh, Christians at the church in Ephesus, describing them prior to their uh, being brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Here's what it says. And you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. That's right, children of wrath. So, um, yeah, something has happened. So it's not sufficient to say that we were created in the image of God. This is true. Humanity was created in the image of God. But you have to explain how everything has been blown out by sin. Now, I think Sean's going to actually discuss the, you know, how sin has marred things. But the, the emphasis here and what he's going to try to have us recover, yeah, it's a mess. We continue. But that's not all. I'll tell you something you may not know about the Genesis, Genesis and crea- the creation account. In Genesis 1, you get kind of like this summary, big picture, big poetic description of creation. Yeah, no, Genesis 1 is not a poem. But Genesis 2, it kind of repeats the creation account again. Now, this is true. Genesis 1 is like a 30,000-foot view of creation. Genesis 2 drills down into the specifics. Yeah. And it goes into more detail. And there in Genesis 2, we find that when God's creating the animals, for example, he doesn't just speak them into being. It wasn't exactly like that. The Bible says he actually formed the animals out of dust. Uh, Let's check that real quick here. I don't seem to recall that in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. The Lord God formed 
the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for the food, the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed. There's a river. God took the man, put him in the garden to work it. Yeah, I don't see anything about the animals being formed from the dust. I think that's just a an error on his part. Now, the word Adam, Adam, means dust or dirt. And a lot of us think that that's what made us unique. But Genesis 2 tells us that the animals were formed out of dust too. So here's here's God forming these animals out of dust. And then he gets to mankind. And uniquely, after he creates us out of dust, the Bible says... God breathes on that dust. Look at this. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says, For the, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now picture this. Just imagine this with me for a minute. Here's God forming all these things. Then he gets down here to mankind. The crown of creation. God gets down on his knees, bends over, puts his mouth on us, and breathes on us. Now, if that doesn't communicate intimacy, I don't know what does. It's just a little bit awkward if you think about it. (laughs) But God is communicating how intimately valuable we are. Now, if you want to talk about how valuable we are, there is a way to get at it, but it's not apart from the cross. In fact, you have to talk about our fall into sin, but I would take you to Acts chapter 20. Okay, when we talk about you know value, you know, listen, something's worth only what somebody's willing to pay for it. You know, so the answer, the, you know, if you were to ask the question, the house that I own, how much is it worth? The answer is it's worth only what somebody's willing to write a check for it. Okay? So if you think it's worth $300,000, it doesn't matter if you think it's worth $300,000 if the only person who will buy it is only willing to pay 110000 It's That's how much it's worth, whatever somebody's willing to pay. So if you want to talk about how much we're worth, well, let's talk about our purchase price because somebody did pay for us. And um, he, here's what uh, Paul says to the uh, elders of Ephesus in, jo- in Acts chapter 20. Here's what he says, verse 26, therefore I testify to you to say that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, or you could say purchased, with his own blood. Uh huh. So the church, you know, the saints, we Christians, what are we worth? Well, we were purchased with the very blood of God. Now, when did God bleed? Answer, when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Who is Jesus? He's God in human flesh. So if you want to talk about our worth, that would be the place to do it. And the nice thing about talking our, about our worth in that sense is that it cannot be discussed apart from or separate from what Christ did on the cross. We continue. And this is a pattern we find throughout Scripture. 
how intimately and how uniquely God wants to know every single one of us and the value he places on us. We're going to talk about that a lot in the weeks to come. And I pray you're going to make the journey with me. But today, all I can do is kind of summarize a little bit. But fast forward for just a minute. Go to Psalm chapter 139. You probably have some of this chapter framed or on a refrigerator at some point. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, David says. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So God knows we're going to be born. He forms us in our mother's womb. He weaves together our one-of-a-kind DNA. And before we're ever born... Yeah, yes, it's, it's one-of-a-kind within a kind. Yes, we're unique within the species of humans. And we all are... We all have, you know, unless there's a, a defect, we all have, you know, ten fingers, ten toes, you know, two legs, two arms, you know, a head, eyeballs, you know, things like that. Um, so yeah, we're all the same and yet at the same time, we're all different. And the thing that the Bible addresses is what we all have in common, our fallen sinful nature and condition charts out our destiny, our unique destiny. Our days are ordained for us. And when God ordains it, it's happening. It's happening. Yes, our days are ordained for us, which kind of begs the question, then, what is good work? Okay, Um, I would go back to Ephesians chapter 2 here to kind of fill this out. Ephesians chapter 2, let's take a look at, let's continue reading verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Mm -hmm. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. Mm -hmm. It is not a result of works, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, now, the good works that we're, that God prepared for us to do, it's not exactly synonymous with this doctrine that these guys put out there regarding your unique destiny purpose thing going on. No, it's not the same, because what's a good work? You know, God's Word defines what a good work is. It doesn't say that you were given a unique destiny. It says that God prepared good works in advance for you to do. So what's a good work? Love your neighbor. How do you do that? You do it in your vocation by, you know, by being a good husband, a good mother, a good child, a good employee, a slave, obey your master, husbands, you know, Love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands and love and respect them. These, these, these are how our good works are to be done. This is what a good work is. So the good works that God prepared in, in advance for us to do all are done in our different vocations as mother, husband, wife, son, daughter, employee. This is how our good works are done, and God has prepared good works for us to do. And you'll notice then is that it's not that there's some unique destiny that you're supposed to do. It's that you are, you are given by God as a gift good works to perform within your different vocations that God has put you into. And you'll notice that good works then have a lot in common. It involves feeding and clothing your children, changing their diapers, you know, doing the laundry, um, you know, making meals, helping them with homework. 
um, going to work in order to earn the, the pay necessary to pay the bills. All of these things are good works and it's not their uniqueness. It's their common, it's their commonness that makes them good works because these are the things that God wants us to do. But this is not what Sean Lovejoy is filling the heads of the people over at Mount Lake Church with. Instead, he's filling them with dreams of unique destiny and stuff like that. And yet, that's not what God is promising in Scripture. We continue. And then every day after we're born, God over and over and over affirms in Scripture how intimately he wants to know us and how uniquely he values us. You fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus says this about us. He's talking in Matthew 10 about not not worrying all the time. And about it not doing you any good. And then he goes on to say in Matthew 10, 29, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not even one of them falls to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more. You ought to circle that phrase. You are worth more than many sparrows. That's right. I was purchased with the blood of God. And again, you start talking about purchase price. You can't be done apart from the cross. Here's God telling us how uniquely he knows and values each and every one of us. Now, let me ask you a question. If God knows us so uniquely that he has the hairs of our heads numbered, easier for some of us than others. But if he knows us that well and he has every day charted out and formed for us a unique destiny that only we can fulfill. And if we really believe that, why unique destiny that only we can fulfill? And that's not what the scriptures say. Why are we trying to be like somebody else? Why? Why are we denying and forfeiting our originality? Hmm. Well, let's let's put this to the ultimate test then. Isn't sanctification about being more and more like Jesus? Why Why would that be the case if originality is the thing that we're supposed to be embracing? Hmm? Our greatest value is found in our originality. No, it's not. Our originality, this, this is not taught in the scriptures. Our greatest value is not our originality. The minute we begin to dumb ourselves down, blend in, and try to copy and compare and condemn everybody that doesn't meet our standards or for who which we don't live up to their standards, if we spend our whole lives doing that, we'll die a carbon copy and not be who God wants us to be. Our greatest value is found in our originality. Die a carbon copy? Isn't the important thing that we don't die and end up in hell? I mean, do you think that we're really going to stand before God? God's going to go, hey, why did you live your life in such a way that you were a carbon copy of somebody else? Don't you realize I made you unique and you had a unique destiny? Really, this is what God's going to judge people for on the day of judgment. And our temptation is always going to be to try to be like someone else or be something that we're not. And temptations, if you fall into that, that's a sin, right? It's not a new challenge for us. A lot of us know what happened to Adam and Eve. Think about this. They are uniquely created perfectly. There's no sin in the world. Think about this, women. Eve had a man who didn't sin. I know you have no reference point, but just imagine. 
think about this. It was perfect. And yet, guess what still happens? The serpent comes along and tricks Eve into thinking that somehow things could be better than the way they were. Thinking that things could be better than the original state God created her and Adam in. That's not exactly what the devil was up to. Um, Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 3. Serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is verse 1, chapter 3. He said to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice here, what the devil was doing was basically casting doubt on God's character. Yeah, listen, God, you know, he's not a good God. No, he's holding out on you. He doesn't want you touching that tree. He doesn't want you eating from it because as soon as, you know, he knows that your eyes are going to be open, you're going to be like God. And he doesn't want that. Uh-huh. So that's the temptation so that you could be like God. We continue. It's just fascinating listening to how these Bible stories get twisted when you think the Bible's all about you and you finding some unique destiny purpose thing that, you know, that you're supposed to fulfill. Tricked Adam and Eve both into thinking that if they were a little wiser, if they were a little smarter, a little bit more clever, they'd be happier. And when they believed that lie, sin entered the world. Yeah, it's actually kind of a lie, what you described as the lie. Weird, huh? And with that, they spend the rest of their lives in this never-ending cycle of failure and shame, failure and shame, failure and shame. And you know what? Thousands of years later, a lot of us are just perpetuating the cycle. We're doing the same thing. We're created as this amazing, original work of art. Beautiful to him. Uh, and marred and corrupted by sin, which is why Jesus had to come and die. See, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. With a unique destiny fulfilled. And we spend every day after that dumbing ourselves down and becoming cheap imitations and putting on layer after layer after layer to hide who we really are and our own insecurities. In the beginning... God's dream was us, the original us. But guess what? We believe the lie about ourselves. We believe we could be better and do it better and be wiser if we did it our way. We believe lies about ourselves. We believe lies about God, just like Adam and Eve did. And our sin marred our originality. But here's the coolest part to me. Marred our originality? It marred our entire nature. It corrupted our sinful, our human nature. <sighs> Boy, this is to make light of, uh, of original sin. Like God knew from the beginning, we'd mess it all up. And from the beginning, he also ordained a plan to restore us to our original state. That's what Jesus is coming was all about. The New Testament, the new covenant. Now, this is true. We will be restored to our original state in the resurrection. Jesus is coming was about him coming and dying for our place to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and restore us to the original work of art. Restore us as new creations, new creatures, new works of art and bring us back to the truth. 
of who we are and who God is. Jesus said in John 8, 32, he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free from what? Free from the lie that says I'm not good enough. Um, no, that's not what the referent there. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Set you free from what? Slavery to sin. Slavery to the devil. Slavery to, you know, the to death. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not the, what, what, how did Sean put this here? Let's back this up. Free from what? Free from the lie that says I'm not good enough. Um, that's not a lie that you're not good enough. You are not good enough. You are a sinner. Christ is good enough for you. Repent and trust in him and his righteousness, his good enoughness is imputed to you as if you had lived it. Yeah, read uh, Philippians chapter 3. I'm not good looking enough. I don't measure up. I'm not worth much. I'm not worth anything. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. None of those things are the truth of the situation. Did you get this theology from Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen? What is this? Not in God's eyes. See, God sets us free from who we're not so we can become who we were meant to be. Huh? If we could get our eyes off of today what we're not and what we don't have and what we think we can't be, it could change our lives. It could liberate us from self-defeat and self-condemnation. Do you see that? We're... So this information is going to liberate, liberate us from the effects of sin. No, it's not. What sets us free from sin is Christ and him crucified for our sins, being in him, being brought to penitent faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins. What are you talking about? It could absolutely set us free. And the greater truth still, I often say here at Mount Lake, but I never want us to forget it. I hate it when... Hate it when people in Western Christianity leave Jesus on the cross and him dying for our sins. Because it's not the end of the story. He rose from the dead. Yes. Walked around for six weeks. True. And then just when the disciples are having fun, they're like, we got risen Jesus. You know, he's like, I'm leaving. And they're like, do what? He said, no, it's better. Because right now, sometimes I'm with you and sometimes I'm not. But guess what? When I leave, I'm going to send my spirit the word spirit in the Greek in the New Testament means, guess what? Breath. Life. Pneuma. I'm going to breathe my breath back into you. I'm going to put my DNA. I'm going to live inside of you. I'm going to put spiritual DNA and mesh it in with your physical DNA in such a way that you become a new creation, a new person. And I'm going to fulfill my purpose for you. Oh, yeah, you keep throwing in the purpose and destiny thing. Where, where did he say that again? You're going to become what I want you to become, my work of art in this life. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Yeah, uh, notice what he's going to do here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Remember, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is the work of God so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Yeah, ver you can't discuss verse 10 apart from verses 8 and 9, which is, tells us that we're justified and we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But he's not going to be talking about that. Paul said, for we are God's handiwork. That word handiwork there comes from the Greek word poeme. Sound familiar? It's where we get our English word poem. 
but it was used back then to refer to any work of art. God's saying here, you you uniquely are my work of art. Look what he goes on to say though. He says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus because of our relationship with him to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Yeah, that's right. And we just discussed this. What's a good work? Being a good husband, a good wife, a good father, a good mother. Yeah, that read like the tail end of Ephesians if you want to look what what does life look like in light of the cross. Yeah, it spells it out quite clearly. And you go, well, it's so common, it's so ordinary. Right, exactly. Hey, God knew we would mess it up, but God knew He could redeem us and restore us. Like our plan B is His plan A. Is that good news or what? I don't know about you, but I'm like plan Z personally. And thank goodness, like none of that surprises God. He's just working his plan and he's ordaining it. And we can become anything God wants us to become. Now, I don't think we can become just anything. Kind of bothers me when I hear parents, you know, or teachers, you know, tell their kids, hey, you know, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. No, they cannot. Think about that for just a minute. I don't want to tell my son that. My son can't do anything if he puts his mind. Let me tell you something about Paul Joy. He will never dunk a basketball. He never will. Because all the love joys were five foot something. And he's going to be five foot something. He's never going to dunk a basketball. If God wanted him to dunk a basketball, he'd absolutely slam it in your face. But he better know it's what God wants him to do. Because if it's just what he wants to do, and he's not meant to do it, he's going to spend his whole life just batting up against a brick wall, trying to be something he cannot be, trying to do something he cannot do. I say in my book for pastors, the measure of our success, most pastors, pastors struggle with this. Most pastors will, in America will not lead a large church like I lead today. And we're not supposed to. There's all different kinds of sizes of churches. But if you're trying to build a big church and God wants you to be at a smaller church all day long, there's all different sizes of church, all different kinds of sizes of church for different strokes for different folks. Would you believe that? You agree with that? It's what God wants for us. We have to measure success by what God wants us to be, not measure success by the world's definition of success. Our uniqueness is God's gift to us and our gift to us. To God. I love the way the New Living Translation translates Ephesians 2.10. He says, for we are God's masterpiece. We are his one-of-a-kind, unique, valuable, priceless, beyond words and value to him. I'm telling you something like, I want my daughters to come to embrace that truth. Man, that they, just like they are, are God's masterpieces. That they don't have to look like the girl on the magazine cover or the red carpet or have 50 million followers to feel pretty. They are God's masterpieces just the way he made them. I want my son to know that he doesn't have to measure himself by another man. He doesn't have to measure his success the way the world views success. He may never be rich. He may never be famous. All God expects him to be is be the best him he can be. And he's been successful in God's eyes. And that all that matters. Will you agree with that? No, I won't. Just be the best you you can be. 
No, that makes me the, kind of the measure. The measure is the objective law of God. Yeah, not be just the best you you can be. No, you have to understand what is a good work, and God's word sets the standard. I'm not the standard of my own life. Yikes. We continue. Do you think that could affect our children? The only way they're going to get it is we model it. We're going to have to get secure in our own skin. Society will try to get us to believe that we need to try to be like somebody else. That we need to be something we're not. That we need to keep up with the Joneses. Hey, who are the Joneses anyway, by the way? Have you ever met? I don't know them. Introduce them to me if you would. Like I thought about this. Like they must live in our neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? We're trying to keep up with them, right? So I, I thought it'd be good today. Like, like after we go to Moe's for lunch, you know, and we head home, we ought to just all jump out of the swagger wagon and get around back, the whole family, and let's just all stand there in the driveway. Let's just put our hands over our mouths and say, hey, neighbors, we quit. We don't have to wear what you wear, drive what you drive, look like you look to be happy. We're done. See you. Have a good day. Can you imagine if we all did that? Um, it would accomplish nothing. Nothing. Because then you're going to get in your car and you're going to go to Kohl's and you're going to buy the latest fashions and you're going to end up looking just like your neighbors anyway. You're going to, when your car runs down, you're going to end up going to the same dealership. You're going to go to the Toyota dealership or the Chevy or the Ford and you can buy a car that looks exactly like your neighbor's cars. (laughs) This is futile. Mountain Lake would be the talk of the town, wouldn't we? Might change our lives. If we really believed that, it would change the financial trajectory of our lives. We wouldn't be in debt like we are today if we really believed that. Finances wouldn't be the number one point of contention in our marriage if we really believed that. I'm going to tell you that right now. This truth could set us free. Our uniqueness is God's gift to us. I thought the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Yeah, weird. I mean, we're so off topic here, it's not even funny. And the Bible doesn't really teach this. Otherwise, he'd be exegeting passages to show us this. And our gift to God, it's our greatest opportunity to worship him. Speaking of gifts, you know, the Mona Lisa, it's valuable, billion dollars. I can't count that high. We all have these things that we struggle with. But let me ask you a question. What what is it about you that you struggle with? What is it about you that you struggle with? I've actually had some time to think about that. You know what I thought of? I struggle sometimes, believe it or not, with my southern accent. I know y'all kid me about it. If you're a guest today, I know you're shocked to hear that I'm not from Manhattan. You know, I was born in Alabama. And... I joke about it, but every once in a while I'll go back and I'll watch one of my own messages online. Have you ever had to give a speech and then go back and listen to yourself? Painful. I actually hate listening to myself preach. When I listen to myself, I'm like, man, people didn't clear the room. Are you kidding me? That was awful. And sometimes I'm listening to myself and I'm like, wow, Sean, you are Southern. And you know, it bothers me just a little bit. And then I also, you know, I speak around the country to pastors. I'm going out to Orange County, California, speaking at Rick Warren's church next month to pastors. And from time to time, you know, I'll get teased a little bit about my Southern accent. And every once in a while, I think to myself, maybe I need to try to, you know, lose that. Maybe I'll take a linguistics class and learn to speak with an Australian accent or something. 
Like I'm convinced if I preached in Australian, thousands would give their lives to Jesus Christ. (laughs) But you know what? Longer I think about it, I ain't going to do it. (laughs) Because I, I am Southern by God's choice and I feel by grace. Anybody else feel that way? And I don't know all the reasons, but in retrospect, it's like starting to make sense. Like why God allowed me to be born in Birmingham, Alabama as a Lovejoy. And he put me in the Lovejoy family. Let me tell you about my family. My dad is the godliest man I've ever known. He's a man of integrity. He's owned his own real estate for 40, business for 43 years. I've never seen him compromise his integrity one time. He taught me my work ethic. He spanked it into me. <laughs> my mother... Godliest woman I've ever known. Prayer warrior. She walked with God. She listened to God. She even spoke for God. Yeah, this um, <clears throat> sermon is heavy on the personal anecdotes, thin, very thin, um, on the biblical passages. I remember where we were on Highway 411 in Odenville, Alabama, population 500, where I grew up. And I remember my mom saying we were home, going home from a church event. And she said, Sean, you're a leader. She said, you're either going to use it for good or bad. And she said, but I I see God's hand on you. And I think one day God's going to do something significant with your life. She may have been making it up, but I believed her. Looking back now, I see how God through the ups and the downs and the valleys and the imperfections and the sins and the th- being sinned against. All those things formed me into who I am today. Gave me my testimony. You can't live my life. I can't live yours. You can't walk completely in my shoes and I can't walk in yours. My uniqueness is God's gift to me and it's my gift to him. All my gifts, all my strengths, all my weaknesses. He has a unique destiny to fulfill for me. And it's my gift to him. Speaking of gifts... You know, Mona Lisa is valuable, but I wouldn't swap her from some gifts that I have, some other works of art I have. I didn't create these works of art. Actually, my kids did. And they're masterpieces to me. If you'll humor me for a minute, I'd love to just share them with you. This is from my son a few years ago. I saved these things. You save the things your kids give you. I save all this stuff. I've had it for years. This is one Paul wrote to me when he was just learning to read and write. On the back, it says Hallmark, H-A-U-M-A-R-K. Happy birthday. I heart you, smiley face. Dad, thank you for making my day a good day. I love you. You're, while you are, the best. Thank you for all that you do. You're so nice. You're sweeter than a piece of candy. (laughs) Thank you so much! Exclamation point. I heart you. Masterpiece. Masterpiece. Cue sappy music. The sappy music is uh, an emotional manipulation technique used to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending on the auditorium, getting ready to do business with people so they can make decisions to do particular things. Apparently, the decision that you need to make is to embrace your uniqueness because you're an original. My daughter, Madison, made me one a few years back. It's in color. To dad from Madison, I heart you. Runs in the family. I heart you, Daddy. I hope you do good. Oh, I forgot to tell you. I, I was going off to speak at a pastor's conference halfway across America. 
and says, I, I miss you a lot. I can't wait to see you when you get home and on FaceTime. I heart you so much, exclamation point. And I remember going to speak and, and I went back to my hotel room and opened up my suitcase and here was that letter. Here's that card tucked in there. Yeah, I cried. That's a masterpiece to me. Not enough money I'd ever trade that for. And then Hannah was listening to Trisha speak to a group of ladies. And she made a comment about our lives having influence. And uniquely, how as we live our lives, we have the power to inspire and motivate people. And she said, Mom, that's, that's what you and Dad do kind of for a living. You inspire and motivate people. And she made this for us. So you're motivational speakers rather than gospel preachers. Got it. Our lives have the power to motivate. Hey, these may not mean much to you and and they may not be worth much to you, but there's not enough money in the world that I would trade for these. You know why? Not because they're necessarily amazing artistically. You know why they're valuable? Because my kids made them. My offspring. Kids that God allowed me to be part of creating. That's why it's valuable to me. And you know what? That's precisely why you are valuable to God. Not because of anything you've done or you will do. But just because you were made by him and for him. And in his eyes... You're valuable. You're one of a kind. You're priceless. You're valuable beyond measure and beyond words. You have a unique destiny to fulfill. You play it. Yeah, you keep saying that, but that doesn't change the fact that Scripture doesn't teach that. And yes, I was purchased with the blood of God. That does demonstrate God's love for me. Again, they cannot discuss it apart from the cross, now can you? Play an irreplaceable role in his plans. From yeah, irreplaceable role in his plan. Um, yeah. Um, again, which passage you know makes such boasts about me? From God's eyes, his uniqueness is his gift to you, and your gift. again. I thought that you know God's gift to us was eternal life in Christ Jesus. Your gift to him, and I believe that truth could set you. Free. So not the truth that Christ bled and died for us on the cross that's going to set us free. It's that our uniqueness is that 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 message is what's going to set us free. Hmm. Now, anybody interested in that? Nope. Then let's go before him and tell him that right now. Yeah, done. Wow. So there you go. And I would just basically point back again to what the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesied regarding the last days. Understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Yeah, lovers of God, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Or in the next chapter, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. 
and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Yeah. We heard a lot of mythological preaching and teaching today. Um, what we didn't hear from these megachurch pastors and popular leaders was that Christ bled and died for our sins, that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We didn't hear the clarion call to repent and to be forgiven. Instead, we, in, rather than hear that we're sinners, we, we're here, we hear how unique we are, how wonderful we are, how original we are, how we have a unique destiny and all this kind of stuff, filling our heads narcissistically, making us feel oh so important. And yet scripture says the thing that we all have in common is that we're born dead in trespasses and sins and rebellion against God in need of the Savior, in need of forgiveness and life. I didn't hear Christ in this preaching, in these people's preaching today. I heard a lot of self, but not Jesus. What did you hear? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.